Portland is fast changing, but do we like the future we're building? That's the question as our city continues to undergo rapid growth and a flood of new residents. The Portland metro area is expected to attract another 700,000 people in the next 20 years. We already face rising rent, a growing homeless population, and a white-hot real estate market. Welcome to Biz 503. I'm Suzanne Stevens, editor at the Portland Business Journal, here with Stephen Green, community director at Elevate Capital. We'll be your host this afternoon. Today's topic is Portland building density. We'll talk about competing visions for our future. Joining us now to share a snapshot of the density changes we're facing, Robert McCullough, president of the Eastmoreland Neighborhood Association, and Rick Potestillo, principal at Potestillo Studio. Rick, thanks for being here as well. A pleasure to be here. So, Rick, I want to start with you. You've been at this a long time through your work, but also advocating for kind of thoughtful urban planning. And you're also a Portland native, is that right? Yes, that is. Let's talk a little bit just to kind of set the scene of density in Portland today versus even, say, 10 years ago. It's really changed a lot. What are your thoughts? Well, Portland and the region have densified as a necessity. A lot of people moving here, and obviously we have an urban growth boundary, which restricts where we can build. We don't just get to extend, you know, suburban development willy-nilly out into the countryside. So that, of course, requires um, more intense development within. And I think what's happening, though, is that as our population is growing, most of the dense development is occurring actually at the perimeter of the urbanized region. So you see that primarily in Hillsborough, Gresham, Wilsonville, where mostly apartment buildings and townhome complexes reaching densities of 30 to 40 or even more units per acre can be found as the norm. That's in contrast to actually the central city, where about 70% of the city of Portland is still zoned for single-family housing. Those densities range from about six to eight units per acre. So we have a flip-flop or an inversion of what a typical or normal city would develop like. And what is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I think it's a very bad thing because ultimately it's not a sustainable pattern. We want high density, but we want high density where it can be coordinated with infrastructure, services, amenities that we already have in place and where it can be, therefore, most sustainable, most economical, and most beneficial to its residents. What we're doing is we're superimposing urban densities and urban-type buildings on a suburban, arterial-based planning paradigm that exists out in the suburbs. Those areas are, are not serviceable with transit, virtually impossible because of distances or the characteristics of the arterial streets for walking or biking, and that means that people are required, essentially, by virtue of the way the environment is designed to drive. We're promoting auto dependency as a result of our planning paradigm. So Robert, let's bring you into this. What are the conversations and the themes that kind of emerge from the talks that you have with your neighbors in Eastmoreland about density? What does that mean to you? Well, the first thing is we don't have very much data. The basic population forecasts we're depending on are assumed. They're not the subject of professional forecasts. So our massive population growth is largely hypothesis. Now that sounds extreme. You have to actually go read the document, and it says assumption. Now, I've taught this at the university, and I can tell you there are much better tools that we don't use. Now, where does that leave us? Well, currently, it leaves us into a bit of a frenzy. Oh, my God, 200,000 people are rushing to Portland. But Portland doesn't have the infrastructure for it. It's not designed for it. The people are not eager to move under those situations. So then the question is, how much of the existing Portland can we destroy to meet this image? 
this picture that we really don't have much justification for. When we hear we have to cut down Portland trees or else we'll be cutting down trees in Beaverton or even further out, we reach this preposterous inversion. Now, Portland's known for having beautiful neighborhoods with very established, very well-planned, very effective, very livable, very healthy. The future we see described has none of those things. So you have to admit, though, so even though we, I think future projections are just a given. I mean, it's hard to predict exactly what the economy is going to do or what might impact the number of people moving here. Do you agree there's a, a housing crisis right now in Portland? It depends on whether you think there was one in 2007. Housing prices were higher in 2007 than they are today, adjusted for inflation. So did you notice a housing crisis in 2007 or did you notice a bubble? Now, back in the 1600s, the Dutch had a tulip bubble, dominated the world economy for a year or two. We needed more and more tulips. Wars were fought over it. But the fact of the matter is that we see a lot of those bubbles. I hear all the time about the housing crisis, but if you drive down Division or Hawthorne, you see a vacancy sign in every new apartment building. So we need some data. Now, one thing you said I do disagree with. All forecasts are bad, but at least doing a forecast using standard statistical tools is better than one that's simply assumed. We are not currently using regular, academic, well-tested statistical tools. Case in point. So yes, metro is not. I mean, I'm yeah, trying to think of the We're using the, the metro forecast, yes. If housing prices are higher, not as many people immigrate, and we have a lower level of population growth. If we have bad infrastructure, and our infrastructure, as we all know, is just terrible, then we have fewer businesses, and we don't have the population growth. So it's about time we actually have a regular professional forecast before we take steps that we will regret for many years to come. Rick, I'm curious your thoughts on what Robert is saying about this kind of planning and that perhaps we're basing it on something that's not going to happen. I think that Robert is making some good points about the type of forecasting that we do, but forecasting isn't a science. So I, I think if he does have better models that we might look at, I you know would like to hear what those are and, and would be open to knowing more about them. But from an anecdotal, just the observation of what's happening, not only to Portland, but to cities across the country, this is not a Portland unique problem. This is a Seattle problem, a San Francisco problem. And I just returned from Boston, where it's the exact same conversation. People are moving out of the suburbs and out of the countryside and back into cities. You know, young people want to be in the cities and old people want to be in the cities for the amenities that they offer. Portland is participating in that process. Will it continue? Who knows? You know, will it continue at the rate it is now? We don't know, but we do know that Portland is one of the most moved to cities in the country. If you look at moving data, we know that it's one of the most rapidly inflating real estate markets in the country. If you look at real estate data. So there is a lot of scientific or quasi-scientific, if you consider Zillow not a scientific entity, that demonstrates that Portland is a very popular and desirable place to be. And so I would expect that if the general trend is towards cities, Portland can expect to see a lot more growth. If the inventory is not there for housing, we're only going to see prices continue to escalate. I think the latest housing forecast, the data from RMLS, said the average price of a home in Portland right now is $400,000 which if you're in Seattle or you're in the Bay Area, that sounds like a steal. But if you're a Portlander in the in the low and even middle income now, that almost puts it out of reach. And I guess, Rick, to your point, you're going to have to look further and further out away from the amenities in order to afford a place to live. See, I would rebut this in the yeah. following way. The prices were higher in 2007. Now that the is... The average price was higher right, than $400,000. Dow Jones Residential Housing Index. Very widely respected. The Case-Shiller. 
Well, the fact of the matter is we were having a bubble at that point, too. A year later, the prices were a fraction of that. We knew they plummeted. Just assuming the market is short because people speculate is not a very good model. And in fact, that is the HL Hunt model of silver. That's how the Hunt brothers went bankrupt years ago. Yes, silver was going up, so there must be a shortage of silver. Well, there wasn't. What there was was a surplus of speculators. The key is that Rick is right. No forecast is perfect, but it is important to use real tools. And you asked, what would I recommend? Well, the immigration data should be econometrically determined, and that would involve certainly demographics, but it also includes cost of living, the cost of housing, availability of jobs. We do not have a particularly good job environment because we lack the big box sites for major new industrial developments. It's one of the reasons, by the way, we're getting these apartments out in the suburbs because they can put a new Intel chip factory out there, and that's hard for us. But all of that is a normal practice in forecasting that we've skipped over. This is only important in the following way. The urban growth boundary has been determined in this cycle. We don't need to worry about that. It was determined they did not need to expand. Fine. But we're now seeing this frenzy going further, saying we need to eliminate a lot of issues that will affect the property values of people here in Portland. Uh, We have a proposal for increased subsidies for developers. That's what happens when you don't have off-street parking. And all of that is going to be hard to take back if we don't study it carefully first. Rick, did you want to weigh in on something there? We live in an extremely mobile society today. You know, no one needs a desk to have a business. All you need is a laptop and a phone. And as you pointed out, to a Seattleite or a San Franciscan, this is a steal of a market. So I think with the mobility and the type of industries that are moving to Portland are probably not going to be large-scale manufacturing industries. That might be great, and I would support that. But most industries, such as the industries that we're designing offices for, are highly mobile, high-tech-based industries, industries that are of this new economy. They find Portland an extremely attractive place to be. Those jobs can be anywhere within the metropolitan region. So in fact, zoning by trying to sort of identify employment zones based on whether you're doing light or heavy manufacturing or whether you're on a blue-collar or white-collar worker is almost an obsolete concept because the kind of industries and the kind of interfaces that we see are so dynamic. But I think that Portland can expect its property values to rise up into the point that it's start to equivalent be equivalent to Seattle or San Francisco. That's only natural. I agree that we may be in a bubble, and I'm afraid it's probably going to burst. I remember moving back to Portland in 89 and purchasing a house for $70,000. The year before, it was on the market for $40,000. Members of my family and I lived there for about 12 years. We sold it at the top of the market for almost $700,000. The market crashed and we were happy to do that. We then bought houses for each one of us. So yes, there is a real estate does go in cycles. That's absolutely true. But I think the long-term trend is that Portland is going to remain and even become more desirable compared to other cities in the country. And we're going to continue to face a situation where housing is in short supply compared to demand, especially where people want to live. And that is going to drive the prices higher. And as you stated, at four hundred thousand dollars now as a base price. That's the average price. If you look on Zillow, you'll probably find about 10 houses listed today at that price point in the city of Portland. That means 
Anybody in the city of Portland who's an average wage earner cannot afford to buy a house in this city right now. And I think that is really the crisis, is more the affordability for our basic average homeowner, or I mean home potential uh, homeowner. Home, yeah. Potential homeowner. Most of that I agree with, Ray. Part of our change in policy is to encourage the demolition of existing affordable homes. When we reviewed what was happening in our area, we discovered that every new home that replaced a demolished home was $200,000 higher. And so encouraging that is not necessarily going to help the young married couple who no longer can buy that home. And so again, we need to have some data and think about what we're doing. If we can find homes for young couples that they can afford, I'm strongly in support of it. But they're not going to be served by the McBansions we're seeing popping up in Southeast Portland. Well, and I think that's what we're here to talk about, though, is density. It's about building the ability to tear down a large home and build three on the same lot at a more affordable price than if you did build the McMansion. I see we have some comments coming in, and I think if I condense them down to what we're hearing about is, it's really what comes down to perspective and kind of people that have been here that are natives. I myself have lived here all my life. I've been lucky to go to other places and see different perspectives around density, but I think native Portlanders really kind of consider anything that has a family to be 0.2 acres. I don't share a wall with anyone else, as opposed to when I hear from my new neighbors, I live in Woodlawn. My new neighbors come here from New York or Detroit or Cleveland. They're like, wow, there's so much space here. And they're coming from brownstones and sharing a wall with someone else. What role does perspective play in this dialogue around density? Because I I hear from a lot of our neighbors that there's that three-plex going up and there's more stuff going away. But some of the other neighbors go and say, wow, I'm going to be closer to my neighbors. I'm going to have more people to break bread with and, and go to local businesses and be able to have a close commute to work. Well, you're right. I mean, Portlanders are used to living in a very lush, green, wide-open city of bungalows and manor houses. And if there was ever a bubble, that's probably the bubble that's bursting because wonderful, and I enjoyed that. I lived backed up to Council Crest with the forest behind my house. I mean, it was phenomenal. We had mountain lion in my parents' house out in Beaverton. <laughs> exactly. Loved it. I would wish that on every kid. Unfortunately, like everything from the 50s and 60s, it really didn't last. <laughs> you know, and it's not lasting now. It was wonderful while we had it. The question is... How do we move forward with the values that we retain from that in our appreciation for green space, for open space, while increasing the density within the city? And I think if you want to talk data, and this is data that I can't actually pin down in many researches so far, there's basically a threshold at which a city starts to become sustainable, and that's around 20 units per acre. If anyone could give me that exact number, if it exists, I'd love to hear it, because that's really what we should be striving for, is a sustainable city where people can walk ride their bike or take transit to meet their daily needs. And when we talk about whether the city was designed for that, in fact it was. This city had the largest streetcar system in the country or in the world with the possible exception of Los Angeles before it was torn out. So it was all designed for a city of much higher density when it was first set up. So we're going to continue this discussion in just a moment, but we need to take a quick break. A land use and how to manage city growth are not topics everyone sees eye to eye on. We'll look at the pro and cons of density as a Portland option when we come back.
Welcome back to Biz 503 on PRP. I'm Stephen Green with Elevate Capital, along with Suzanne Stevens of the Portland Business Journal. Join the conversation by posting your questions and comments on the talk board or tweet us at pdx-radio-project. Today, we're talking about building density in Portland a salient issue as our population continues to swell. Some people are pushing for demolition and density. Others want preservation and innovation. Joining the panel now to look at the pros and cons, Vic Remmers, president and owner of Everett Custom Homes, and David Wark, principal at Henneberry Eddy Architects. And still with us, Robert McCullough, president of the Eastmoreland Neighborhood Association. Vic, can you kind of talk about your thoughts on density? You've been deep into this and your name's been out there a lot as tearing some things down and building some things up. So I just love your thoughts on density and kind of where we are right now. Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of density. I'm really been pushing for the city of Portland to get more density. The fact that we are not fulfilling the needs that we currently have with the people that are moving here, whether they're moving here from the suburbs or they're moving here from out of town, there's a lot of pressure for people to want to live close into the city. And it's been going on for years now and we haven't been meeting the demand that's out there. And we need more density in the city. And what's happening is is we're going in the direction of where Seattle is, of where San Francisco is, where we don't have enough housing for the people that want to live here. All it does is it just makes it to where you have to be very affluent to be able to afford to live in a close-in neighborhood in Portland. And so I want more density. I want more options for people other than just building one house on one lot. That's all we're allowed to do in most of the zones in the city right now. There were more options to build, you know, more attached housing, smaller houses, more units on a lot. I think you'd have a lot lower priced homes. I know you'd have a lot lower priced homes. You'd have more density, way more diversity in the neighborhoods, and a lot more equity in the city for people to be able to live maybe in East Moreland or maybe in Irvington or a place that they can't afford right now. They need to have the ability to enjoy those neighborhoods, enjoy the parks, enjoy the schools. But right now, many people aren't able to do that. And so they have to live further out. They don't get to take advantage of what's great about the city of Portland. So I think the density is a huge thing. We need to have more density in the city. Otherwise, we're going down the road of being San Francisco. David, can I bring you into this as uh, chair of the Portland Design Commission? Can you first kind of talk about the commission? It it seems I've hosted a few of these, and we always come back to the issue of affordability. Right, right, and that's key. Uh, To answer your question about design commission, it's a um, quasi-judicial body that's appointed by the mayor. There are seven commission members, and there are basically three districts in the city of Portland that we kind of review design projects, and that's the central city, central east side, and then gateway district. And those are called, in the zoning map, that's a D overlay, so it means design. Anything over a certain dollar value is reviewed by the commission. And so in terms of building on some of the conversation that I heard previously, cycles, we had a a bust in 2008 and then a bit of calmness. And now we bounce back, if you want to call it bounce back, into an era that is more frenzied than the previous era we were in. And so we're seeing a lot more proposals. And most of those proposals have nothing to do with single family housing. And I just have to say that single family housing, we have established neighborhoods. We're not going to work our way out of the density problem with single-family residents. We're going to work our way out of the density issue by different types of housing that are much more dense that you're seeing sprouting all across the city on corridors such as North Williams and along Division. And what are, do those look like? Just well, they're, yeah, they're apartment buildings for the most part. They are what are called a five-over-one. It's basically a concrete first floor that typically has commercial enterprises in it, restaurants, particularly along Division, you know, the whole restaurant mm-hmm. row now. And on top are a mix of different apartment types. And it's not so much What I heard previous also was the price point for single-family homes. One of the major points of crisis is affording an apartment. I was in a tour this week of an apartment house that is downtown. There was a unit in there under 200 square feet 
seat for $900 a month. That puts us in perspective, I think, now. In a lot of houses, and there was a larger unit that was about 300 square feet for $1,200 a month, $1,300 a month. That's Most that's mortgages are that price, right? Yeah. Across the board, the price point now for houses are getting beyond the reach of most people. Robert, I'd love to bring you in because I know you had a comment at the end of the last segment when we were talking about density and you were bringing up the idea of a house coming down and another single family house going up. But what about the idea of houses coming down and building three homes that might be more affordable to a wider range of people? We did that research. I'm on the Developer Review Advisory Committee demolition. We went through the data. The homes we were able to identify, it was costing a hundred to $200,000 more after the demolition. Now, why is that? Because you have to knock down the existing house. Let's take a look at the cause celeb, 32nd and Rex. Beautiful historical home, knocked down, bought for about 500. Two homes being built, probably at 900 apiece. This is not affordable. It is an example of a one-size-fits-all point of view. Now, one thing that you said, uh, David, that I agreed with entirely, is there are different strokes for different folks, and we should end up with very different solutions, and people should have the right to choose those solutions. But we do have a sense, and certainly this is a sense in Southeast Portland, that we're getting ordered around. We're being told that you can't do what you want. They're going to change those rules, generally without a lot of warning. And so that's created a lot of anger. The bottom line on this is the following. If we cannot have an urban canopy, we're going to lose our carbon sequestration. There are immediate health impacts. There are price impacts. Even from Ottawa, there was a study last summer that I wrote about in the Oregonian where there were contentment impacts. When we are making these designs, we should first get our numbers right, and then we should also think about where we want to go. If you want to move to Brooklyn or out to the uh, east side of Chicago, that's fine. We should let people make that vote. But ordering them to go live in a Chicago neighborhood when they really don't want to, that isn't very democratic or demographic. So we really do need to sit down and think what we're doing. So Vic, you've been in the news. Give us your take on, on kind of what's not being talked about right now when it comes to the housing conversation, affordability, and density here in Portland. Well, I think there's a lot of misconceptions, a lot of maybe stereotypes types out there. For example, the concerns about tearing one house down and building one in its place. One thing about that is that the market really dictates what's going to happen with those homes. And rarely does a house that's actually really nice get tore down one house and replaced by one other house. And the reason that is, is because there's a very strong remodeling market out there. There's a lot of fixer-uppers. There's people that are looking to buy those houses. The only time a person that's going to tear it down and build it, the only time they are getting that house is if the house is so bad, it has no value. So it's only worth what the dirt's worth. The only time that a house that maybe is a little bit nicer gets tore down is if it's going to have multiple homes replaced. And that's what the city needs is we need more density, more housing opportunities, more families being able to move in the neighborhood. So I think that's a big misconception and people don't really understand the fact that most of the times when a house is being brought down, there's a reason behind it. Whether the density is getting increased or the house is so bad that nobody wants it. No one wants to live there. There may be people breaking into it. There may be an eyesore in the neighborhood. There's lots of neighborhoods where this is a huge problem. They need more affordable housing in those neighborhoods. They need new houses. Having someone living there versus a vacant house is a huge benefit. Can I bring
bring one up just because it's in the news right now. It, oh, it's, the, it's over on Rodney, Northeast Rodney. It's a large home, I guess a century old. And mm. so I was just reading about it before I came over. So here's this large home. It had been, I guess, gifted to be used as a, you know, a foster home, but it's a mess right now. You guys have purchased that and the right. idea is to take that down and yeah. neighbors are protesting and build several homes on that yeah. lot. My question is, why not invest and turn that into some kind of multi-use, multi-family property yeah. if it's large enough yeah. to sustain that rather than the incentive all around just the profit of what comes from taking it down and putting up multiple homes? Another perfect example of a misconception. That house that we are purchasing, a remodeler bought it and I've had people look at it. The remodeler tried to fix it yeah, up. Yeah, it's a mess, and right? I've it's heard. got dry rot. It hasn't been taken care of for decades and it's really a sad story what was happening in that house with the foster home and the abuse that was going on there. It's really a negative to the neighborhood recently, unfortunately. So that house is in disrepair, hasn't been taken care of. It has more value to be taken down and be replaced by seven more affordable homes than what that house is. You have to realize there's one big house that's, you know, a million dollars. There's going to be seven houses there that'll be between three hundred and seven hundred thousand dollars and $700,000. So you got to realize there's seven opportunities for families to live there versus one really big house. It's not zoned to be turned into a big apartment, so you can't do that. And you wouldn't even do that anyway because of how horrible the shape that it's in. It's unfortunate that that house hasn't been taken care of. There's so many out there that if they had been taken care of over the years, they wouldn't end up in this point. But when they get to this level and it's not financially feasible for anybody to fix them up, then they need to be replaced. That's kind of the natural works of a city. It happens. I mean, that's what needs to happen in the city. We need more homes for people. Let me respond to this because I actually know about this situation. I talked to the neighbors uh, late last week. The home was flipped out of a receivership situation at a very low price. Neighbors are investigating some legal action on that basis. That does not involve Vic, by the way. The basic sale price to begin with was not actually the right price. On the 32nd and Rex situation, an older couple sold the property to a nominee. The nominee's name is Eden Enterprise. Very mysterious, very doubtful folks who have a post office box in Southern Oregon. And then was flipped to the eventual developer. What was wrong about that? Well, caveat emptor, what does it matter if we take advantage of some old folks? Obviously, I do care because I knew them. But the other part was the nominee had promised not to demolish the house. But of course, a verbal contract is worth what it's written on. So we have a situation where there are many areas of abuse. Now, why did we care? Well, we lost a whole set of trees. Vic and I tend to fight over trees a bit. That's fine. And we ended up losing a historical house, which, by the way, was excellent condition. But at that nominee's very low price, of course, Vic is correct. The developer is going to make money, knocked it down immediately, and now what we have is two not very appealing McMansions. So there really is more to it than simply uh, Vic making a good business deal. Uh, no point have I ever criticized your business acumen. I think you're a smart guy. But there's a lot to do with the society we're living in. If old folks lose their home to promises that can't be enforced, we really do need to stop for a moment and think, is that actually the path we want to be on? Thank you for those insights. I want to thank everyone for coming, Robert, Vic, and David. Next up, what solutions are out there for our growing city?
Welcome back. I'm Suzanne Stevens with the Portland Business Journal, co-hosting Biz 503 with Stephen Green of Elevate Capital. Today we're talking about the challenges Portland faces as it grows. For our segment on solutions, welcome back to the studio. Rick Potencio, principal at Potencio Studio, and David Wark. Principal at Henneberry Eddy Architects. Density, Portland, externalities. What haven't we talked about yet? The city is going through a 2035 comprehensive plan, rewriting that. And so there are very specific goals and strategies for increasing density. And it's based on this concept of corridors and centers. And Rick knows about this. It's based on kind of the template that was established during the streetcar era of Portland, where the corridors of Hawthorne and Division and uh, Belmont, Williams and all of those lead to, from the central city, out to a node or a center that has a little bit more intensity of use and businesses and Westmoreland, et cetera, things like that. They're building on that idea of intensifying development along corridors and even more intensity and intensity at the centers. And so that's the that's the basis for the strategy of the comp plan. So there's a lot that goes into that. And they're also rewriting zoning code relative to mixed-use zones and simplifying it and adding height, which then, therefore, could also add apartment units. Then that starts to address the point I was making before, single-family housing is not going to solve our density issues. Top developers in the city who are out there building a lot of these multifamily, right. multi-use mm-hmm. buildings that we talked about earlier, David. And one of the things that was really interesting is the old versus new in Portland. And you're talking about people. We had a Facebook comment come in earlier during our discussion. The Portland I knew is dead. What we have now is a zombie horde posing as Portlanders. See ya wouldn't want to be ya. And I think that kind of, you they're know. talking about people or buildings? I think they? they're talking about people <laughs> in this instance. But what was interesting in this roundtable that we had of these developers is that it was really interesting to hear that people feel like they should have the right to park their car in front of their house on a public street. If you've lived in Portland all your life and you've enjoyed the nice lot, you've always been able to pull your car right up in front of your house. Well, I mean, I can see maybe there's this sense of I'm entitled to have that spot. And now that this building over here that has 15 apartments in it, I might have to park around the corner. So I'd love your thoughts, Rick. Let me ask you about old versus new in Portland. You're from Portland. From a lot of these developers that we talked about, really, Portland is growing. It's a city that's vibrant and it's growing and it's changing. And that in itself is a good thing. So would love your thoughts on kind of the old and new kind of colliding around this issue. Colliding is probably a really good term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but certainly we all love old Portland. I mean, what's not to love? Not all of us. Not all, not all of us, possibly. Depends but on what your old Portland yeah, is. Yeah, I yeah. guess, yes. I guess that's also a matter of perspective, <laughs> yes. right? It's kind of the comp plan that we're engaged in right now and our base basic premise for how we're going to grow, which is, as David said, it's based on corridors and centers, really two very unfortunate terms. Just from that point right there, I think that we set a tone that's not very aspirational. If we were to say urban villages and boulevards, we start to think about how we design our city in a different way. And I think a lot of what people are objecting to is not necessarily the density in and of itself, which is really just more people living next to you. It's that the buildings that we see housing those people are rather poorly designed, poorly constructed, and of the type of materials that really, in many cases, don't last, the warranties don't last as long as the mortgage, which is why we have Home Depot. I think that people are really reacting to, they're also reacting to the loss of trees, for example. But what I think they're generally reacting to is the lack of quality in their environment that comes from the benefit of good design or uh, the preservation of amenities, such as trees or open spaces where we need them. 
this should be a part of any of one of our design solutions. And I think, again, speaking earlier, we were talking about how Portland was designed, whether it was actually intended for more density. And David points out that along the streetcar corridors, if you will, which are called boulevards, Hawthorne Boulevard, for example, there was a lot of density. But most of the density that we realized in the teens and 20s was in what's called middle scale housing, multifamily units of a myriad of designs that were blended in throughout these single family neighborhoods or vice versa. So in other words, when we first instituted zoning, it was very simple. We basically had a couple of categories. We had residential, we had commercial, possibly we had industrial, but within the residential zone, you could build all number of multifamily and single family buildings. And we see those still today. In fact, those are our most walkable neighborhoods with the highest walk scores. And in many cases, they're our most desirable and most, as a result, expensive neighborhoods. And I can point them out. They would be Kings Hill, Goose Hollow, parts of Northwest Portland, Buckman, Kearns, the close part of Irvington, close to Broadway. These are neighborhoods where you can find a great diversity of housing at achievable, sustainable densities around 20 units per acre for a variety of households. Can we continue that? Can we kind of get back to that kind of building and density? That's the hope, yes. Comp plan, it should be pumped up in terms of its aspirational language. It's more of a kind of wonky planning document. I mean, it's got a lot of flowery language. It's much more complicated than its predecessor. Design Commission has weighed in on a lot of the issues relative to active streetscapes that keep those corridors vibrant walking areas like we've talked about. With a lot of development recently, it hasn't happened. Trying to fine-tune exactly what the buildings are going to be like, at least at the ground level, so that you have an urban kind of front that's active and exciting. But relative to the types of buildings, there aren't any real design guidelines other than kind of Title 33 and neighborhood design standards. And so those are woefully out of date. They are decades behind being updated. And when you've got a six-story building or a four-story building, and the language talks about little gables and details that are at a bungalow scale, and you're trying to transfer that onto a five or six-story building, those just don't work. There are many other examples of, of what it comes down to in terms of the visual language that and how they relate to the old Portland neighborhoods that they're kind of adjacent to and backing up to, such as that division. There's, and most of that friction comes between a mid-block zoning difference where a four- or five-story building fronts division, for example, a corridor, and behind it is now a line of four or five little bungalows that's drastic change in their environment. So at what point does the conversation around design and the building's impact connect with the people element of it? I live in Woodlawn, which I think is one of the mm-hmm. best neighborhoods in the city, but the 80s and 90s as a kid, I, I wasn't allowed to go in Woodlawn Park. Mm-hmm. And it's the same park today that you know, my wife goes jogging at at 9 o'clock at night, and it's it's right. this amazing, carefree place that people love. It's It's got some a great commercial street front, breweries and restaurants there, but people experience it very differently now than they did 15, 20 years ago. And what can we do from a design standpoint to be intentional around how people experience these places versus, well, it looks good, or it's, it's put together well, or, you know, it's this proximity to a park. Well, the fundamental building block for any successful urban building is to have an active storefront at the first floor. That's where design commission starts. That's where all the design guidelines, they're all based on. And you just talked about the breweries and, and walking and the businesses and that. All the, the most vibrant neighborhoods have that. And so the corridor needs to talk about the, along the entire corridor, it needs to maintain that. And then the nodes or the centers are even more intense development that do that kind of on steroids in a way. Actually, I beg to differ because I think that the solution is not corridors and centers. That's a part of the solution, but that really leaves out 70% of the land area of our city. And it presents us with the predicament of building the same sort of buildings as you see along 
along uh, Vancouver Williams Corridor or the sort of buildings you might see in South Waterfront. High-rise towers or large extended full block long blocky apartment buildings, which are fine, could be designed better, but are acceptable building typologies, but which are almost universally, and all you need to do is look at the website of any one of them, directed towards people who are single, who are uh, paying very high rents or very high prices to live in mostly studios and one bedrooms. There are very few two bedrooms. You don't get above two bedrooms until you start to get into the condominium market, and you might get a two-bedroom van at a million two and a glass tower. So we're not actually building housing in our core or centers for families that might want to live or remain as they become families, as singles connect and become families that want to remain in our city. And I think that is the crisis. That is the core crisis that we're facing. So what do we do about it? I am advocating for a concept that says let's build around commons. The commons is what you talked about, a park like Woodland Park or Chapman Park or any one of the numerous parks and school nucleuses that we have evenly distributed throughout the city. Take those as our starting point. Think of them as you would a New England town that has a commons at the center or Boston or Cambridge with their commons or you think of the wonderful park squares in London. These are examples where you have a green space at the center. Typically you have an institution or two. You have high density housing around it. That high density housing can have at its base the same sort of street pedestrian oriented amenities that everyone needs. You know, your coffee shop, your ice cream store, your lawn mat, your daycare, all of those things accommodated, but now centered around a green space that has an institution such as a school at the center. That's And then the backfilling from there, middle-scale housing blended in with single-family housing, that's where we can really increase the density of the city and retain the character that we all cherish. It's hard to argue with. That well, sounds wait, that lovely. Could, but what, if I could ask yeah. you, though, is that, is is that it in uh, like Chapman Park? You've got Chapman School, you've got a couple little apartments, and you've got single-family homes ringing it. Are you, are you are you removing all the single family homes and then around firmly established neighborhoods or well again we're going to see I agree with Rick we have to come up with innovative housing solutions but and I'm seeing more two bedroom family apartments being coming through design commission it's it's actually swinging a little bit the other way now but I don't think it's swinging anywhere yeah, near right. enough no um, if agreed. we want a city agreed. of families sure. there's there's no way we're going to get right. there right. with the format that we have underway sure. now but what I'm saying is that we should have actually rather high density around these parks. If you look at uh, Cooch Park, for example, it's surrounded by large apartment buildings, buildings that aren't yet as tall as the trees, you know, at five, six, seven, eight stories. They're still shorter than the trees in the middle of the park. And behind them are, again, as it's northwest Portland, all number of houses from single family to every variation of apartment. That seems like a really appropriate way for us to infill because now it's intentional. We have an idea around it. And if we apply an idea, a model, we have the model Models are already existing in multi-family middle-scale housing throughout the city. So we have models, add an intention, we create some planning design guidelines around that. We create some guidelines about what we preserve. And I think that in that way, and I've done the math, we can double the population of the city without resorting to a single glass tower or another apartment block on another arterial street. So I got two things for you. One, that's great that Vic builds these great homes. I probably will never be be able to afford one of them. How do people that are low-income folks that love Portland just as much as everybody else, how do they afford to stay here 
here, take advantage of all these great amenities, be close to light rail. And then secondly, why don't I see ADUs everywhere? I think, especially in this Airbnb economy that we have, we've got baby boomers, we've got multi-generational Latino community growing huge. Why don't we see people taking but, that bull by the horns? But I question whether that's a solution too. First and foremost, it gets back to affordability is related to supply and demand. That is absolutely the starting point. So there's a lot of things that we can do as a, a society to assist in affordability for people that are, are needing that assistance. But we really have to start by bringing balance to the market. That's where it's going to start. How do we get more housing, as I'm speaking about? I think if a building is demolished, if a house is demolished, it should be at a replacement rate of four to one. So at a minimum, four units should go back. How can it be affordable? Let's say that two units are townhomes and, and the ground level of each one of those two units, they share a common wall, so they're a townhome. There's an ADU in each one. By this, an ADU that's incorporated, not in the backyard, an apartment that's on the ground floor. If you actually think about it now and you realize what that apartment rents for, you realize what you've built the house for and what you probably see sell it for, you can recognize that the apartment is going to contribute a major amount towards that mortgage. And over time, that apartment, if it just appreciates a normal rate, over time, that apartment rental will actually be paying the entire mortgage. That might be just about the time that the family has raised all the kids, they're out to school, and they decide that they want to move into the apartment and rent the house, thereby giving income to the parents who are now empty nesters. There's ways for us to design our housing stock such that it can provide affordability with an, on a one-to-one -one basis of the owner and the renter. We're just not thinking along those terms. But if you look at cities like Boston and San Francisco, that's how those cities were built. That's how they've been able to maintain their original fabric and character without these massive demolitions because the housing typology that they employed, which is a townhome, was uniquely modifiable to the varying needs of demographics and economics over centuries. We, with our bungalow setup, don't have that versatility in our housing stock. I think that that's really the answer. I think a four to one is fine, but how many homes are going to be torn down? That's a question, right? I mean, as if you replaced every home in every neighborhood, that would be a real impact. But, but I that's think not that true. Actually, I, I want to disagree because... Well, hold on. You've talked quite a bit. So let well, me talk for a second. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll <laughs> Go ahead, disagree. Yes. <laughs> that's fine. You can disagree. I think, you know, it's a, kind of a thermonuclear planning device to be dependent on a significant number of houses being torn down. And, and with, that's kind of ground zero for the battleground that exists now was the first half of this conversation. I don't think abandoning streetcar line streets is necessarily the answer. Why not make great boulevards like you talked about earlier, Rick? I agree with that 100%, and the potential is there. We have a lot of unused property in the city. Brooklyn Yards, for instance, what's the long-term plan for that? It's an enormous amount of property in southeast Portland. The whole area around uh, 82nd, large tracts of land that are just underutilized. As we grow, we're going to have to grow eastward. Part of this whole conversation, uh, I mean, Vancouver has to be part of the conversation. The numbers of people contributing to the traffic, the traffic is, is going to be a critical issue with, with all of this. We haven't really even talked about that, but Vancouver and TriMet need uh, need to be part of the conversation. Well, and I think the other thing that doesn't get talked about, especially as people always bring up San Francisco, is San Francisco hasn't gotten any bigger over the years. It's the fact that right. San Jose right. has gone from right. the right. 73rd largest MSA in the country to number four, right? right? So well, it's, you, it's sheer supply and demand, sure. like, like Rick was talking about right. when you have so many people. We don't really have an urban growth boundary for Portland, per se. We were surrounded by either geographic limits yeah. or political limits by other jurisdictions. So we can't expand Portland, right. even if we wanted to. Ability to expand is is through through density. Right? We only have a couple of minutes left. Sure. And David, I did 
want to get your I just want to go back to something that, that Stephen brought up and we've had a listener that wrote in about it as well. I mean, are low income and even now middle income people do they just need to accept that for the foreseeable future? Yes, thank you. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. It's I mean, a, for yeah, the foreseeable sure. future. I mean, there's got to be political will uh, uh, and there's got to be public-private partnerships that start to form through nonprofits and for-profits and through agencies and funding. No one entity is going to be able to address this issue on a long-term basis. It's just not possible. There's got to be financial incentives. There's got to be a creative housing types. There's got to be creative construction types. There's got to be just a will by our, our culture and our society and actually finding leaders that will will help us do that. Do you uh, think we're headed in that direction? We have a well, new there mayor was, coming in. There's we a, have... There was a good amount of money, $60 million. We've seen some of that come through Design Commission, some of those projects. And I think it's leveraged quite a few units. I, I've heard something like 900 units or something like that of affordable housing. I'm on the Portland Housing right. Bureau's oh, ad- advisory committee. And it's, you know, when you think about the number of people that are going to be moving here, 125,000 new households in the next 20 years. And the fact that currently we have a little over 10,000 units here in the city of Portland that are regulated, uh, all sorts and colors. Even with the new step up in the set aside, in the next 20 years, we're going to create another 9,000 units. It's mind-boggling, right? It's it's, And so I completely agree with you. We need all hands on deck. We need the number one property owner, PPS, and the county to come forward and bring transit development sites. And, and we need to buck up and have some really good conversations with our, our friends in Vancouver and Beaverton and Gresham because Gresham's coming westward. We always talk about us being kind of the big dog that waves everything, but, but Gresham's yep. coming towards yep. us. Right. So it seems like that's a good place to, to wrap this up. It's kind of a call to action that the community needs to come together around this. I think we all can agree that is one point we can all agree on. Rick Potestio, principal at Potestio Studio. David Wark, principal at Henneberry Eddy Architects. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Thanks to our earlier guests as well, Robert McCullough and Vic Remmers for taking their time. Thanks for joining us today on Biz 503. Have a great weekend. 